Mighty God, thank you for the time to be together. We're about to hear from your word, a challenging passage that uh, stirs up a lot of different things. And so we're very grateful that whenever we sit under the authority of your scriptures, your Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus promises to dwell with us in such an incredible way. So we ask for your good work and your good word to come through this time. We ask that you would free us to learn and to be shaped by you. And may the words of my mouth and the things that all of us consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. Well, we are starting a new sermon series today, and it's safe to say we're starting it with quite a text for us. I'll read it for us in just a moment. But I want to kind of set a little bit of a scene for us today. We're starting a new sermon series about women in the Bible called Chosen by God. And yes, Bethany does believe that women can be called to teach, can be called to positions of leadership, including being a pastor in the church. That sets us kind of in a particular part of the church theologically that you may or may not have grown up with. Uh, One of my kind of heroes in the faith is my mom, because I grew up watching my mom lead and serve as an elder in my church when I was a kid. And so this is familiar territory for me. I recognize that it's not as familiar for a lot of people, depending on the context you grew up in. So I want to say that from the outset, that we're coming at this subject of women, of leadership, of courage from a lot of different angles. And those angles and those vantage points are part of what makes Bethany unique. I've had people say to me, you know, Bethany isn't, it's, it's, not, it's too progressive on these issues. I've had people say to me, Bethany's too conservative on these issues. And it's just kind of fun to sort of stand in the middle of that and go, yep, this is who we are. We are neither super one way or super the other way because our commitment is to preach Christ. And our commitment is to preach the scriptures and what they teach. Today's text is a difficult passage because historically it has been connected to a very difficult topic. And I'm looking to see if there's kiddos in the room. The topic that most often connected to this passage, at least from what I've understood it to be, is the topic of abortion. And that's a really, really tough subject. So I want to give us fair warning that we will have a few minutes of today's sermon devoted to that very difficult subject. And I'm going to try to do it as best I can with grace and with integrity and with an understanding that we all come at this from very different angles. And I want to offer some resources to help us as we try to understand what the scriptures teach about this. And I recognize that there are a few subjects that are so loaded politically and legally and socially. And yet to be preaching the text that we're looking at today and to not address where the text speaks to that particular challenge would be a disservice to the text and a disservice to us as a community. So I'm committed to preaching the whole counsel of what I believe God is saying through the scriptures today. I am also committed, we are committed as a community to having dialogue and conversation about these tough issues. And I'm looking out of the room and I see so many of you who have the perfect outlet for this. You are part of small groups. And small groups are the place where people who follow Jesus can actually get into harder discussions and do it safely and with grace and integrity. So I want to encourage that from the top. Like, this isn't going to settle the issue for us. That's not my goal. This isn't going to be the end-all, be-all of sermons on this. There are far greater preachers who have tackled this in a far deeper way than I will today. But I want to encourage that continuing conversation. I want to encourage the outflow of that in small groups. I also want to just welcome your feedback, emails. You want to send me any kind of notes about this today? I welcome that. And I really do believe that when churches and congregations have conversations about hard subjects, we grow We grow in our depth of love for Christ, and we grow in our ability to engage people who are far from God, 
who may see the scriptures witness differently than we do, or may, they may align with it. And so I recognize that diversity of viewpoints today. I recognize that faithful Christians can disagree about this subject. And I just want to say all of that from the get-go. Because for us to dive into a topic like this and to not say those things, I think would paint a lot of people into some corners that would be very uncomfortable. And if you find yourself getting uncomfortable throughout the sermon this morning and you need to go get some fresh air, go get a cup of coffee, take a stretch break, that is okay with me. Now let's hear the word from the Lord from Exodus chapter 1. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you want to bring this up on your app, I welcome that. And we'll talk about context and kind of what's been going on. But this is a dialogue between the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and two courageous women, Shipra and Pua. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, see them in the process of getting ready to have a baby, if, is a, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, he sh- she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but every girl you shall let live. So today's text, I'm going to break it out for us in three different headings. Like I said, we will spend a very small portion of our time together talking specifically about the subject of abortion. And it's, I think, appropriate for us to know the greater context so that this passage isn't just lifted up and used as I know it has been used to kind of be a club against particular political views, okay? We are going to look at the whole context of what this scripture is talking about. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along with that. And it goes like this. We're going to talk about how this problem has come about. How did, how did we even get to this point in the story? How do the midwives define what courage looks like? That's the real point, you guys. That's what this text is about. It is about people who love God and who are called to courage. And that is something that we can all relate to. And finally, we'll discuss how there's an ongoing battle and how really the Hebrew midwives, they don't settle the whole thing. They still have work to do, even after their portion of the story is done. Context, courage, and battles. And the way that we kind of you're going to unite all of this in a thesis statement, it goes like this. In the context of chaos, God provides courage for those who seem to be powerless. In the context of chaos, God provides courage for those who seem to be powerless. Now, let's look at the context for just a minute. Exodus chapter 1, what's going on here? What have we come up into? The people of God, the nation of Israel, are living within the borders of the nation of Egypt. And Egypt was the big daddy, the superpower of the ancient Near East. And what's happened is back at the end of Genesis, you may remember the story of Joseph. Joseph, as a leader of Israel, has brought his people into the kingdom of Egypt so that they wouldn't die. They were facing starvation. They were facing the end of their peoples. And so Joseph, through his influence, through his ability to work with the people of Egypt, different culture, reaching across the aisle, we might say, brings them into a place where they can survive and thrive. 
And this is how God keeps his promises to the people of Israel. This is so phenomenal. If you know a little bit of the Old Testament history, you'll know God didn't just promise people that they could live and that they would just kind of have a happy-go-lucky suburban lifestyle. He says, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to many nations. He says this to to, uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you will become the father of many nations. And so what's happening at the beginning of Exodus is God is keeping his promise. Because the people of Israel are multiplying. They're multiplying in such a way that the king of Egypt starts to feel a little uncomfortable. He starts to feel like, increasingly, maybe these people are becoming a problem. Turn with me to Exodus 1, and I'll read verses 8 through 10 for us. This helps paint the picture of what's going on. This sets the problem, sets the tone for the rest of the passage. Starting in verse 8, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase in the event of war, join our enemies, and fight against us and escape from the land. We're going to lose our slave labor force, you guys. These guys are going to throw us over. They are going to become the dominant people group. It's not going to be our time to sit on the throne anymore. It's going to become their time unless we do something drastic. That's what Pharaoh is saying to his unnamed counselors in this section of the scriptures. Haven't we heard that before? This is not the last time in human history that one group of people in power looks at another group of people and says, you're about to become a problem, and we've got to do something about you. Now, why was it this way? What, what was going on that created such tension? Well, the Egyptians and the Israelites basically represented polar opposites in terms of their culture and their religion and their ways of life. They were different ethnic groups, largely. One was more urban, maybe a little bit more rude-eyed and educated, culturally sophisticated. One was a little bit more country bumpkin. One, the people group of the Israelites were known for being shepherds. They were known for working with their hands, being in the dirt. And the Egyptians just looked down on them and said, no, you guys are not like us. So we have a polarized nation with different people groups fighting with one another. There's prejudices everywhere. Tensions are high. And as one of my favorite seminary professors used to say to me, does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? This is not the first or the last time that a context like this has arisen because this is the nature of people. Out of this context, Pharaoh decides that to deal with the Israelites means that he's going to start dealing in death. This is Exodus 1, 15 and 16. Pharaoh has said, we're going to make life hard for them. We're going to make them work really hard. We're going to be brutal to them. And then I just read these passages to us. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. That fear And that misuse of power that has been building up until this point in the narrative now becomes government policy. Now it becomes the standard by which Pharaoh is going to operate. He is going to bring down the hammer of the power that he has to eliminate what he sees as a threat. Genocide is one of the oldest sins of humankind. It is not a recent development. It is not something that we have learned from. And it pains me to say this, you guys, but as educated as we may think we are, we have not become educated about genocide to the point that we stop it. Humanity has ceased to learn or has demonstrated an inability to learn from our mistakes. Think about it. Just in the last couple centuries of history, some would say that the way that the Native American peoples were treated when 
the colonists from Europe first arrived, that that was a form of genocide. That's how I learned it growing up in my history classes. Think about the Holocaust, not that long ago. Think about Serbia and Bosnia in the 90s. Think about just in the last 18 months, a group of people I had never heard of, the Rohingya in the nation of Myanmar. That is another form of genocide. Have we evolved past this? No. Have we learned from our mistakes? No. And here's why I'm making this point. Evolution is not our hope. Evolution, being able to say we have learned, we have changed, we have become greater as a species, that's not our hope. Our hope is Christ. Our hope is the one who says human life matters. Our hope is the one who says all people groups matter. All groups of people around the world, no matter how marginalized, no matter how out of power they are, they matter to God. That is where leaders from all political stripes can actually make a difference. And the one who kind of maximized this case and made this case hit home for me was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've never read one of the many biographies of him, I would encourage you to do so. He helped the German church that was becoming divided over the issue of genocide. A group of churches saying, yes, this is okay. We're fine with our nation doing this. A group of churches saying, no, this is not okay. We are not supposed to do this. Bonhoeffer helped provide leadership based in the scriptures to honor the people who were being persecuted and to stand against those who would have seen that genocide become even more full. And I want my kids to know about heroes like Bonhoeffer. And I want there to be the type of discipleship and the type of radical devotion to Jesus Christ in our church and beyond, where when we look at things like what Bonhoeffer looked at, we say, that's not okay. And genocide is one of those things. So there's the context, there's the problem, the context of divisions, racial bias, the problem of arrogance of, well, we know how to solve this problem, don't we? So if you're God, who do you send into this terribly complicated situation? If you're God, if you have all the powers of the world at your disposal, you send a gigantic army in, right? You send them marching in with swords and spears, and they're going to take this guy out, right? No. Okay, maybe you send in the most well-skilled, the most pedigreed and degreed statesman or stateswoman of your day. You send in the person who can make the political argument, and it's just going to shut the room down, and it's going to be gorgeous, right? That's how you're going to end the genocide, right? It's through someone trained. No. Okay, uh, maybe you file a class action lawsuit. No. Here's the takeaway. Don't miss this. Who does God send in in this moment? the critical moment, the tipping point moment for his nation. Here's who he sends in. God sends in humble servants who love him. He sends in humble servants who love him. Would you say that with me? Humble servants who love him. You just articulated your identity, Bethany. I know you guys. I know us as a church. That is our identity. We are at our very best when we remember that we are humble servants who love God. And look what God does through these humble servants. They don't need their degrees. They don't need all the stature and class that the world can give them. Friends, when we face anything in the week ahead, we're probably not going to face genocide. But when we face something that seems too big for us, remember who you are. You are humble servants who love God. And that is enough. That is more than enough. And if we were in a different kind of church, somebody would have said, Amen. Amen. Now, let's talk about the shape of courage. This is where Shipra and Pua, these two Hebrew midwives, really live into the reality of courage for us. This is verse 17. This is the key to the whole passage. Don't miss this. 
The midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, and they let the boys live. Now, why did they disobey? Why did they stand up against this moment that was really a decisive moment in the life of the people of Israel? And in verse 17 and 21, you can see the reason. They feared God. This is the first time in the Old Testament that that phrase is used. The fear of the Lord. They feared God. It hasn't been used until now. Here it is. And the fear of God isn't just to be afraid of God, to be afraid of his incredible power, his hatred for sin, his desire to see all things made new. To fear God is to recognize how much power he has and how little we have. To fear God is to recognize how much power he has and how little we have. I'll give you an example. Uh, I have gone surfing once in my life when I was in Costa Rica. And the surfing instructor that was there with us kind of you know, taught us how to get up on the board and all these kind of things. And it was fun. But I remember a friend of mine reminded me of this actually this week. What's the first lesson of surfing? The first lesson of surfing is to fear the ocean. Fear the ocean. What does that mean? That means that when you are about to get out there on your board and you see the waves and it's beautiful and you see the power and the awe and the splendor of what's happening out there, you have to go out there on your surfboard and remember that you are toast if you do not take the power of the ocean seriously. You're done if you get out there and you think, okay, great, I can do this and I can do that. You have to be mindful of your context. You have to show a deference and a willingness to say like, hey, look, I'm just a blip on the radar screen. The ocean is way more powerful than me. First lesson of surfing is to fear the ocean. The first step for us into having any kind of conversation about any complicated ethical issue is to come before Almighty God and say, God, how do you look at this? What do your scriptures say about this? That instills in us a hunger for the truth and that instills in us, I think, a fear of the Lord, which is what Shipra and Pua model for us. If you think about it, it's like competing sounds. We all face this every single day. There's the competing sound of the drumbeat at work. You've got to get stuff done. You've got to close the next deal, get the next project. And we have to listen to that because we have to be able to show up for work. We have to be able to do what we've been called to do. But there's a louder sound. And the sound we are called to listen for, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is the sound of the ocean. It is the sound and the power of Almighty God with us that helps us right-size whatever challenge we face, whatever emotional things we go through, whatever terrible things have happened to us in our past or whatever fears we have in our future. When we recognize that we are there to fear the ocean, to fear our God, and to live in awe and reverence before him, every other problem gets stretched out into the capacity that God intends it to have. Everything else can be seen properly through the light of the fear of the Lord. And if you think about it, Shipra and Pua are facing the roar of an enemy that they are probably terrified of. A Pharaoh that was worshipped as a god, an army far bigger and deeper than any army the Israelites could muster. They're in a position of servitude. This is a patriarchal society. They were not looked upon as people of power in any way, shape, or form. And here comes this bully who says to them, your friends, your neighbors, the people that you have lived with throughout your life when they have babies, I'm going to ask you to do something terrible. Can you imagine being asked to do what the midwives were asked to do, how could you stand? The only way we can stand, the only way Dietrich Bonhoeffer was able to stand is when we properly hear the roar of the ocean. When we hear and respond 
to the goodness of our God in the midst of our circumstances. And we can right-size that problem. Okay, here it comes. We're going to talk about a very hard subject for just a minute. And I am not going to be able to paint for us a complete picture in any way of all the nuances of this debate. I will recommend a resource that I've recommended to a couple of our small groups. This is a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament um, by Richard Hayes. This book does such a good job of treating a lot of very difficult issues through a biblical perspective. And I don't agree with everything that this guy writes. So if you want to pick up a resource that's helpful, if you want the chapter specifically devoted to abortion to be sent to you, email me. I will send it to you. And what we learn from that, what we learn from a study of the breadth of our scriptures is this. God values all of life. God values life from creation. He values the way that he put the world together at the garden, and he values all people's lives, even people that don't want to follow him. And he wants us to belong to him. And this is painted all throughout our scriptures in a variety of different ways. One scripture that I'll share, just one, and I know this scripture has been used as a club, and I don't mean it to be, is Psalm 139, for it was you who formed my inward parts, you who knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them has yet existed. That scripture has been used to put people in a place where they feel like they don't matter to God because of a decision that they've made. That scripture has been used to tell people, if you're wrong about this, you're wrong about everything, and you have no place here. Friends, that is not what Bethany believes about that scripture. That's not what I believe. I do believe that God calls us to honor human life and that abortion presents a huge challenge to that ideal. But I also believe that there's place in God's church for everyone. And if you have had any kind of contact, any kind of exposure, any kind of involvement in anything like what I'm talking about, if that's been part of your past, if you've walked closely with someone who's had an abortion, if you have had a turn in your life that you didn't plan on and you had to make choices and you look back on those choices and you wish you didn't have to think about them, if you've been involved in the political debate around this, if you've had people yelling at you for whatever reason, for your stance, this stance, if you've been part of any kind of, of, of this dialogue, you belong here, you belong in God's church, and you belong exactly where we all belong, which is in the healing arms of Jesus Christ. Because we belong to him. And that is where we find our unity. And if you disagree with that formulation, if you disagree with using that scripture to support that viewpoint, if you've got a way of looking at it that's different from my own, you are welcome here. You do not have to agree with that setting. However, I do believe that's what the scriptures teach, and I invite you to further dialogue about that. And I invite you to do that in small groups. I invite you to do that in safe places where you can have that conversation, feel respected. Because here's the other thing, and this is something that the church has forgotten, I think, a lot of times. When we have these conversations around difficult issues that can often be so divisive, as much as we believe we are called to honor human life and to respect the dignity of all people, we often forget that we are called, as Paul says in Galatians, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
We are not called to put people in a box or to say you don't belong here. We are called to say, how can we walk through this together? And any church that is committed to preaching and teaching in any particular way about the scriptures must be committed to the care and, the ser- and being in service to our community. And to be, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, ready as we walk along the road to care for others who may not look like us, who may disagree with us on a variety of issues. And we do so not from a place of having it all figured out. We do it from a place of humility and grace. Let us not forget that no matter how we see this issue or any issues, we are called to be neighbors. And Jesus says neighbors got to love one another. And I want to be committed to that better and better. And I believe that by having these conversations, we will get better and better at loving and caring for neighbors. When Jesus tells his people, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness, this is the church's opportunity through difficult issues like abortion, like any of the other major issues that so divide our day, to say, you know what? This is how I believe our God comes at it. And let us have an extra, extra seasoning of grace for these conversations. So, I had to ask God for a lot of courage this week. I had to ask God to speak like he has never spoken before through the scriptures. And we're not done yet. But what I found as I studied is that I really do believe this. I believe that this decision, the way that we are informed as we approach difficult ethical issues, is through the lens like the midwives show us, through the fear of God, through the reverence and awe of God. And good Christians can disagree about this. But this has been formative for my own heart. And what's been even more formative for me is not just to say, here's the part about abortion, here's the difficult stuff, okay, let's all go home. Because it's tempting to do that, because it's so emotionally heavy to do this. But again, we're going to preach the whole counsel of the scripture. So there's a little bit more that we need to talk about. We're not quite done yet. Stay with me, because the text had some stuff to say to me this week about courage that I think is really, really helpful. So, the midwives have stood up against Pharaoh. Pharaoh learns what's going on. This is where we're going to talk about the ongoing battle. So, turn with me back to Exodus chapter 1. This is verse 18. The king is mad. The king summons the midwives to him, and he says, Why have you done this? Why have you disobeyed my orders and allowed the boys to live? Okay, this Pharaoh is a micromanager. Why is he so involved in this tiniest little detail of his nefarious plan? Like, shouldn't he have, like, delegated this to somebody? He is so wrapped up in this, and this will come into play in a little while, that he can't not have this conversation. And it shows that Shipra and Pua aren't just two midwives off doing their thing. Some scholars believe they were actually leaders of different cadres of midwives. So as these two leaders, these two women who helped lead other midwives took their stand against Pharaoh, guess what that did to all the other midwives around them? It inspired them. It showed them that they could have courage for that moment. So friends, if you're a takeaway person, if you like to write down a practical thing, here it comes. Courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. So when you're at work this week, when you're with your kids this week, just watch when you take that courage that God has given to you, when you stand upon it, and when you step into the next thing, watch as people around you are inspired by that. That's part of our calling this week. Now, verse 19 is actually a class A example of biblical humor. Okay, so this is an opportunity for us to kind of relax just for a minute. Here's what the midwives say back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, why have you let these boys live? Why haven't you done what I asked you to do? And you can just picture Shipra and Pua kind of standing there just like shrugging, like, 
Then the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. Pharaoh says, why aren't you doing what I asked you to do? And they try to turn it into a joke. They say, look, king, we would do what you asked us to do. But man, these Hebrews, they're like the Indy 500 of babies. This is happening way too quick for us. We can't keep up with them. Now, are they lying to Pharaoh? Kind of. Are they creating a reasonable diversion? Oh, absolutely. Are they breaking God's laws by being deceptive? Hardly. Here's why. I found a great quote this week from a scholar named John Lightfoot. He lived in England during the 1600s. He says this, The words of the Hebrew midwives are not a lie, but a glorious confession of their faith. They are saying to Pharaoh, we don't believe you are the one we should roll up to. We don't believe you actually have power in this moment. We believe Almighty God does, and that's who we're going to serve. Even in the midst of a terrible situation, they have a sense of humor. And so my encouragement to us, the application part for this, is that God's courage and confidence come with a light touch. God's courage and God's confidence come with a light touch. I'm not saying we turn around and make a joke out of everything, but it allows us to have some levity, some freedom in the midst of the heavy things that we face. And Shipra and Pua model that for us because they have confidence in God to care for them. Now, we need to finish up the passage again. I said we're going to preach the whole course of Scripture, and then we're almost to the end. This is verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. Remember, God's still keeping that promise to the Israelites. I will make you a great nation. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but every girl you shall let live. Pharaoh says, I'm going to keep doing what I said I would do. I'm going to keep pounding at this terrible thing that I think I'm supposed to go do. And Shipra and Pua say, fine, you're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep doing our thing. We're going to keep trying to subvert your plans. Now, would you call that a stalemate? Maybe. I would actually call it a checkmate. And here's why. Pharaoh's heart in this back and forth is becoming so hardened. His quest to stamp out the Israelites becomes the blinders through which he can see nothing else. If you continue his story, you see when Moses comes on the scene, one of those babies who was rescued, when he comes to power, whether it's this Pharaoh or a different Pharaoh, the Pharaohs have become so hard-hearted that when God extends the opportunity to them to have peaceful relations with Israel, to have peaceful relations with God, he can't hear it. His heart is so hard that he has no capacity to hear God's voice or a new direction. Friends, may that never be said of us, that we had no capacity to hear God's voice. We had no aptitude to hear a new direction. It's a checkmate because Pharaoh believes that what he's doing is going to further his ends when in fact it furthers the ends of God. All the things that he has tried to spin up to get what he wants is actually used by God to bring freedom to his people. And only our almighty God can do that. So when you go to work this week, when you face a relationship where you're going, this is going nowhere. Like I cannot make any kind of traction with this coworker. This kid is challenging me so much. My boss is overbearing. I feel distant from my spouse. My encouragement is pursue the things that you know God wants you to do, but have open hands and have a soft heart. If he wants to steer you in a new direction, ask of him, God, what would you have me do? 
I've been working hard at this relationship and I'm not seeing progress. How am I in the wrong? Show me my hidden faults. What might I be missing? Keep asking for God's best, but keep a soft heart and keep open hands so you can hear what he's up to. In the context of chaos, God provides courage for those who seem to be powerless. Shipra and Pua had no power, but they had the influence that changed the trajectory of the nation of Israel. And they are key human actors in this long tradition of God revealing his truth to the whole world, not through the powerful, not through the people who sit on thrones, but through the people who are humble servants who love God. And no one would ever have put their money on Hebrew midwives being able to change the course of a nation. Nobody would have put their money on a ragtag family getting a bunch of animals and throwing them into a boat and saying, that's going to outlast the seas. I'm talking about the ark. I'm talking about Noah. Nobody would have put their money on Noah and said, you'll make it. You'll be fine. You built that boat by hand. No big deal. That is a frail and fragile risk. Nobody would have put their money on the midwives. Nobody would have put their money on Noah and his family. Nobody would have put their money on Moses, a murderer, a fugitive, a shepherd, a guy who stuttered, a guy who struggled with confidence, who lacked courage in the most critical moments. And in his frailty, God used him for incredible things. And God can use a penniless, homeless carpenter from Nazareth to change the world. Now, you know why that's good news? Because I am frail and fragile. And as I get older, oh man, I realize more and more just how vulnerable and broken I am. Whenever I face challenges, especially here in my work, oftentimes my reaction is to go, that is too big and I am too small. That is the ocean and I got my dinky little boat. I can't do it. I'm unfit for office. I struggle with anxiety, with being fearful in my leadership. I feel isolated. I go back to the well of self-pity over and over and over again. And you know what I was encouraged by this week? I was encouraged by the midwives. And I was encouraged by Moses and by the ark and by the carpenter from Nazareth. Because this is good news for people who are frail, Bethany. This is good news for people who are barely holding it together. This is good news for people who don't have a grasp of the power that God has given to us. And maybe that's you. And maybe you're like me. And maybe you need to hear this. The work of Yahweh will not be stopped. And not even a genocidal maniac on the throne can stop his power. Not even someone with all the chips and the army and everything else. And if God can take down a nation that is hell-bent on destroying his people, what can he do through you and through me? If he can use midwives to do something tremendous as humble servants of God, what can he do through you and through me? So have courage. Be a people of courage this week. Nothing can stop the work of God. Not your past, not your shame, not your politics, not death or life or anything else in all of creation. Because our God is the God who takes humble servants who love him and uses them for glory. So, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Mighty God, we're thankful for this time together. It's appropriate that we come now to your table 
Because your table is the place where people across the centuries have gathered, not who agreed with each other perfectly about everything, but who agree that Jesus is Lord. And we're thankful that we can see your lordship and your grace through the story of the midwives. Now we pray that as we come to this table to receive bread and juice, to be in fellowship with you, God, you would restore us. As we were talking just now, there may have been things that were said that were just so painful to hear for so many. Would you help us come to the table and seek your healing? There may have been those of us in the room who are filled with pride or with certainty or with just an overconfidence in, in how things are supposed to work. And we ask instead for soft hands and open hearts. And we ask increasingly that your church would be a voice for healing and for reconciliation. A voice that speaks to the power that you have over all of life. So God, bid us to your table now through the power and might of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.